Welcome back to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. We are talking uh, business jets and aircraft management, and I've got uh, Andy Priester with me today. Andy is the chairman and CEO of Priester Aviation up in Chicago. Anybody that's been in business aviation knows that Priester is one of the premier names out there. So uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for no, coming on. Greg, today. I really, I really appreciate being able to, to hop on with you and hopefully share a few things that are going through my mind that we wind up seeing in the industry. And if it's valuable for your listeners, all the better. Let's uh let's so you're generation number three. You bought the you bought the company from your father. I did. Uh, How was that stepping into those shoes? So um uh daunting to tell you the truth, you know. Um uh, one of the things I think that separates us as a company is really the heritage that comes along with it. And, and it's uh, a lot of what our team members really feel. In fact, a year ago, we put together a whole new statement, mission, vision, values, and operating beliefs. And, and, and I didn't put them together. Uh, really, the entire team put it together. And one of the things that came through clearly was um, how people feel about the heritage of of what we're doing. And I mean, that is a direct testament to my, my grandfather, but, uh, and there's probably going to be pages in the future, but I'll share a little bit about my grandfather. And then of course my father who took over for him and, and really got us to where we were. And it's, it's Craig, it's kind of an interesting story. My, my grandfather started the company. Um, he was actually a railroad fireman. So what he would do is he would shovel coal into the steam engines and then at night and on weekends to make the ends meet, he would wind up working at the local garage. And in the 20s and 30s, when the airplanes were coming out, there were no such thing as AMP mechanics. Um, so anybody that had an airplane and it broke, they would go down to the corner garage and they'd say, can you help me fix my airplane? So he started bartering time, fixing people's airplanes in exchange for flying lessons. And he fell in love with aviation. So he decided to make a go of it. But, um, you know, maybe the thing that's interesting besides all the stories that go along with the history of Priester Aviation is he really recognized at uh, a very early time period, I won't say age, because he wasn't a young man, that flying was going to be a business tool. I mean, this kind of comes out of the barnstorming ages and, and things along those lines. But he recognized that, um, you know, the airplane was going to be more than a hobby. Um, and he built his business around that. He, he started a business really teaching uh, guys coming out of the military how to fly in civilian service, instruments, things along those lines. Then he said, you know what, if I'm going to have an aviation business, I should probably buy an airport. So he bought Pelwaukee Airport at the time, which is 103 acres. And then after he had that, he, he and this is, uh, he bought that in 1953, late 50s, early 60s is when the earliest jets were being produced. And he really recognized the jets as being another business tool. So literally went around to all the manufacturers and, um, and asked them how many feet of runway do you need to really conduct 80% of your missions? And the answer wound up being 5,000 feet, which is exactly what um, he used to help construct the runway. You can probably hear the airplanes behind me that, you know, the current Palwaki slash Chicago Executive Airport is. And, and the key there is he was a visionary. And I mean, at a time that people thought flying was going to wind up being only fun. Mm -hmm. He was really kind of building the business. And my dad certainly carried that forward. We had a private airport um, and he really recognized how important it was going to be in that time for the Chicagoland area. So he was uh, uh, and recognized the need and the safety scenario created by control tower. So we actually had the first control tower at a private airport in the country here at uh, at Palwaukee. Okay. So again, there's been this consistent vision of how do we wind up making aviation more than what it was and great for what it's going to be and how can we wind up adding safety as a component to that? So when you ask the question, um, how has that transition Ben, I took a look at what my grandfather's done and I took a look at what my dad's done and how he's contributed to the industry. And I go, holy cow, what am I going to do next? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm inheriting a company here that I'm hoping not to screw it up, but I'm hoping to do something special within our industry and for the family and for all the team members and things along those lines here. So, so the task itself is, 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 is not small, but I think we've got a pretty good start on it. What do you, I mean, so how many jets, so you're, 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 you're a management company, you've got jets under management and you mm -hmm. obviously charter. 
Mm-hmm. How many jets? How many jets on your ticket now? We have just under seventy, and it's not on our certificate. So I mean, we've actually pivoted the company a little bit. So we're we're more of a Part ninety one management company. Okay. So uh, kind of an interesting story. So we pivoted about five years ago. We probably have a little bit of a different philosophy for our company than a lot of other companies out there. Um, uh, we used to say we're a charter company that also always uh, also manages airplanes. Now we say we are a management company that also charters airplanes. Okay. So um, our um, certainly not our sole focus, but I mean, if we were to really rank the target clients that we want to bring into the Priester Aviation family, the 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 top of the heap winds up being the Part ninety one managed clients, and shortly there, so that's like one A, one B is going to be what we call the 150, 150 owners, and that's the people that are going to fly their airplane one hundred and fifty hours and want to charter it one hundred and fifty hours. Right. For us we are not terribly attracted to the owners that want to fly at 500 hours. We have a very robust charter um, sales department and do a lot of charter, but from a management perspective for us, more times than not, the owner that wants to fly their airplane five or 600 hours is typically a charter customer that owns an airplane instead of an airplane owner. And as soon as the market slows down or you wind up getting a big expense or something along those lines, they're the people that are left scratching their head going, man, I really wasn't planning on spending 75,000 bucks for a windshield or whatever it winds up being. So it's just a much more difficult relationship to manage. It's much more intense. We wound up doing a study probably six years ago now before we did the pivot and we mapped out how much time and effort it takes to manage a um a charter client that wants a t- uh, an aircraft owner that wants a ton of charter compared to a 91 owner and the number came out to be 7x it takes seven more seven times more labor hours to manage a charter client uh, I, mm-hmm. I keep saying it wrong, a managed client that wants a lot of charter compared to a 91 client. So, you know, you take a look at the last couple of years, charter has been going crazy. We, um, we recognize that we're probably leaving a little money on the table from a margin standpoint, but we also believe that really focusing on the longevity of the 91 client um, is probably a little more consistent long-term strategy for us. Yeah, I placed the president of EJM several years ago, the former president before Brian Hirsch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and the, the the mantra back then was sort of grow at any, it was grow, 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 grow. And it's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, be careful what you ask for. Like you said, you know, you get the guy that wants a lot of charter and, you know, their margin, maybe they're on the margin as to what they can afford. They get that big bill. You know, mm-hmm. They don't be, be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah. When you, you grow at any cost, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. So what's the big, yeah. So, so as you've come in, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, you talked a little bit about your grandfather's legacy. What's your legacy? Where do you want to take, where do you want to take Priester? You know, um, I, I have the appetite for growth and expansion. It's kind of funny when I came in, when I came back into the family business, it, it it was a little funny because I, I was a teacher before I came back into the family business. I taught school for five years and um, I came back and I, I had the illustrious title of manager of special projects, um, which means I just kind of wandered around the airport and I paid attention to what the managers were doing. And I was trying to figure out what aviation really was. I mean, of course, I grew up mowing the lawn and working the line service and doing all the rest of those things here. But it's the first foray I took into the company. And you know, my dad and my grandfather's philosophy for a lot of years was Chicago or uh, Priest Aviation was a Chicagoland-based regional operator. Mm-hmm. And and I remember back in the day, I'm like, Dad, why? Why? I mean, why are we only here? There's so much opportunity. And, and um, you know, just traditional businesses were run where you wound up having the patriarch or the the senior person that not many people questioned them. But of course, I had been doing it my entire life. So my dad would say something and I'd like, well, why are we doing it that way? So we started looking at things a little bit differently. So we kind of branched out and became more of a national player. Again, right now we wind up having 
you know, our airplanes literally all over the world. We have an airplane based in Bangkok in the past. We had five airplanes that we managed in Hong Kong. But currently, we have a whole bunch of airplanes in Texas, California, New York, of course, Chicagoland, um, uh, Florida. I mean, we're, we're a little bit everywhere. And I'd like to think that that was my influence back then. So in terms of where I want to go with it, um, you know, I take a look at the growth profile and the challenges that exist out there in our industry. Um, I have, I, I very much have an appetite for um, acquisition, but uh, probably not in the same vein as um, what's currently happening. I think everybody that's probably listening to this podcast Mm -hmm. um, recognizes that there is a slew of acquisitions going on by, you know, the set of 800 pound gorillas, right? Whether it winds up being, um, you know, Thomas Floor or Kenny Dichter, whoever it winds up being. And my personal belief is those acquisitions are really motivated by the need for supply. There has been so much demand generated throughout the COVID times, and now it's left over and things along those lines. Here's people that have built their business out of guaranteed contracts when, when there weren't any more airplanes available, they had to come up with a plan. So, so their roll-up strategy, I believe, and I haven't sat and talked to them about that, really focuses on securing um, uh, the supply to support their demand. We have a little bit of a different thought. So we want to grow and we want to, uh, you know, go through some acquisitions. But, you know, the phrase we use is culturally aligned companies. Mm -hmm. I have a philosophy that in the um, 80s and 90s in particular, there's a lot of local management companies that popped up, right? And they might be in secondary and tertiary markets where, you know, somebody that's successful in those particular areas wants to buy an airplane, they don't know how to do it, they go to the local FBO, or maybe the guy that owns the FBO comes from their same church, or they're at their same golf club. And they say, John, I want to buy a jet. And I want you to take care of it. And that was kind of the basis and the genesis of the smaller family run management companies and charter providers that kind of exist kind of throughout the country. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot mm -hmm. of them, whether it's two or three or four operators or maybe or, or airplanes or maybe 10, 15, 20 airplanes. But there's a lot of family owned operators. And, um, you know, starting in the 80s or 90s, now we are here in 2022, the guys that started them when they were 30 are probably starting to go what am I going to do to exit? Am I going to do this until I'm 85? How am I going to do this? And because these, these businesses have been built on relationships and friends, and again, the people they meet at church or the golf club and all the rest of those things, it is built that the business has literally been built on the relationships that they have with other people within the community. So a lot of times when PE comes in and big money, there is a sense of trepidation, pause, all the rest of those things, because they're concerned that those potential suitors are not going to take care of the people that they built their business on. Right. And they're not. And that's the whole, that's the whole deal. You have big PE comes in Carlisle or the guys that, you know, a lot of the guys are coming in and buying all the FBOs up or, yeah, you know, they, you know they, they, they've got their shareholders now to, to mm -hmm. report to. So we think, you know, there's this whole bunch of people out there that, you know, if with the right timing, you know, can sit down that we've already had conversations with a handful of them. And, you know, here's Priestor Aviation. I'm third generation. We've got quite a bit of infrastructure just already in place to really uh, uh, do our whole fleet and take care of our whole fleet. Um, it's a different feel if I'm sitting across the table, then again, if somebody from Carlisle and no disrespect to anybody there, they know and they recognize that if we were to do a deal, part of the deal is taking care of their people, not just their clients, but their team members and things along those lines. It's critical to the future success, not just of that particular company, but the future growth plans of, of Priester. And, and by the way, that could be a straight 91 management company. They don't have to have one airplane that they're doing charter with. That makes no difference for me. In fact, we're a little more attracted to the people that that aren't really interested in charter for the same reasons that I shared before. So, so we think there's a market and we're not going to go buy three or four people a year if we wind up doing one acquisition every 12 to 24 months, just so we could take the time and 
I keep talking about that cultural alignment, make sure that that's good for both sides and they know what we offer and we know what they offer. And we can take the time to think about what the good ideas, because in both organizations, there's going to be lots of good ideas. It's not priesters coming in to show you how to do it. That's not it at all. There's a lot of smart people in our, in our industry. And we just want to make sure we learn from the contributions of all those smart people. Along those same lines, a lot of the smaller, you know, a lot of a lot of challenges in the industry right now: fuel, insurance, pilot costs, hangar costs. You know, a lot of small. You know, I've I've talked to several people out there, and they said a lot of the smaller operators are looking to get bought. They, you know, they they need to scale up in size. You know, you guys are you know you guys are nice, nice size business. You can absorb. You, know, you can absorb it. You can get the discounts. You can get all the advantages of being a little bit bigger. Are you seeing consolidation happening? Not necessarily, you know, voluntarily, but hey, we really, we really just can't compete in the way the the way the industry is going right now. Yeah, uh, and I, I can't say that I've seen directly the consolidation, but I've seen the appetite for those reasons. And I mean, you hit it on the head. Um, we have a capital intensive, structure intensive industry. Uh, our industry continues to get more complex, whether it winds up being regu regulatory complexity, operational complexity, training complexity. So again, it just lends itself to the need for more infrastructure. And um, smaller operators, they realize it, right? The the you know the single pilot certificates or or the the mom and pop operators that are spending seven days at school instead of five days at school or are trying to figure out what they need to do to comply with the YASA requirements. You know, more and more of that gets thrown on top of them, and at some point they go, "I can't do it anymore." I know I can't do it anymore. So they have the choice, either invest money that they probably don't want to into their organization or align themselves, sale, something along those lines with a company like us. It is not usually cost-driven um, because you know their owners are already willing to accept the costs that are incorporated, whether it's higher fuel costs because it's a smaller fleet, right. whatever that is, those owners are with them probably because of the relationships that they've already established. But when a, 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 an aircraft uh, management company can't deliver and they recognize they can't deliver what the owner is really expecting, that's when they kind of flip the switch and they go, we need to do something a little different. Yeah, I got you. And, you know, so you know, let's just talk a little bit about, you know, some of those challenges that they're seeing. Fuel is obviously out there. I'm, you know, I was talking to an airline guy the other day, said they're paying eight bucks at JFK. Yeah, well, I, it was up to it was up to 14 bucks at, uh, at Teterboro or 13 bucks in Teterboro about a month bucks. ago. So, you know, you're tankering a lot of you're, you're hoping to tanker a lot of fuel and the FBO is not happy there. Let's talk about pilots. Yeah. How, you know, pilots couple of, you know, it's the craziest market i've seen pilots training mm -hmm. um a way overheated pre-owned aircraft market mm -hmm. where you know a lot of newbies coming in don't necessarily know what they're what they're buying um, so it's, how are you guys how are you guys navigating all this um uh gingerly so um you know the the pilots it's it's hard so, um, uh, you know, for us, we are trying to um, really expand our recruiting efforts. Um, I know that's easy to say, but but I mean, we really are. We just hired a really talented um, head of um, uh, recruitment for the organization, and we're particip uh, participating more in really a lot of the DEI initiatives, people, the places that we hadn't gone in the past, but women in aviation, um, OBAP, which is the Organization for Black Aerospace Professionals, just different organizations to try and penetrate the market mm -hmm. in different places. But the other thing, Craig, that we're trying to do, not just for pilots, but across the board, is we're really taking a look at what we can do to attract and keep them in our organization. You know, we've always subscribed to, at least for the last 15 years, um, uh, kind of fixed schedules. Um, and that's coordinated with the owners. Our most desirable 
um, uh, methodology is to have an airplane with three crew members so they can be two weeks on, one week off, so you can provide the quality of life and things along those lines. So one of the places that we are getting pilots from is the traditional two pilot crews that don't have that predictability of schedule because the pilots right now, of course, they, they hold all the cards, right? They can command their salary. They can command what they want to do for um, quality of life and schedules and things. So, so, I mean, we've always kind of done that, but the other thing we've done for all of our team members is we're trying to find some really unique um, uh, benefits. We've got a really good benefits package, but we just added, in addition to our 401k program, an automatic profit sharing program for every W2 team member that's you know here at, at Priestry Aviation. We've done other things that um, they're more than feel goods. They're meaningful for a lot of people. We have company paid pet insurance. I know that winds up sounding silly, but you know pets are such an important part of a lot of people's lives. People love it. They really you're the really second. Do. You're the second company this week I've talked to that has said we provide that, and yeah. you know that's it's a function of what what do employ what's important to employees, right? Exactly. And we're always looking for more ways to do that. You know, we developed last year, 2021, some ways to engage with our team members more where we actually have outings. And for us, it's here in Chicago, whether it's to the Cubs game where we invite both vendors and employees and we do all those things. And it's kind of an all expense thing. And and the we feel that the more we're connected, the more job satisfaction our team members can get, you know, that's going to promote longevity um, and it's going to attract new people. Our best recruiters are our existing team members, the people that can share what we're doing for them right now and how we're trying to run the business. Um, you know, we just actually invested again, this is specifically here in Chicago, but we put a ton of money into a really, really neat team member lounge, a collaborative workspace. So I can go upstairs right now and there winds up being all kinds of drinks and snacks. I mean, it's a little bit Google-esque, I get it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, there's the ping pong table and it's really, really cool. But the whole point is um, we have elements of remote working here. I mean, we're not a complete in, uh, in office, but we're the majority in office. We find value in that being together so they can wind up coordinating, you know, particularly with the, the logistics people and the client services people, but working with the clients, but we're primarily in the office. And the vision here is if they want to get away from their desk and they got their laptop, you know, go upstairs, grab an iced tea out of the fridge or a Coke or whatever the case is on a bag of chips and sit with your laptop and get some of your work done up there, you know, kicking your feet up and, and things along those lines, just to, enhance the environment, build the culture. So it winds up being a, a good place to be. There's lots of companies that purport to have great work cultures. Um, it's really easy to say you have a great work culture, but we really feel the need to demonstrate and, and really put our money where our mouth is. And, and we've made a lot of advancements over the last, you know, two years kind of um, I'm, this is no discredit to my dad, you know, before I took over for him, but I mean, it's one of the things that I've really focused on. So let me talk. So I was flying to Dallas a couple of weeks ago and I sat next to a deadheading American airlines first officer. And he's got his little iPad out and he's looking through the company regs and all the good stuff. And we started talking and he used to fly a challenger 300 91. And he said, Hey, look, it just, I needed the security of the airlines. And he, yeah. Okay. I'm like, all right, if you can find it, good luck. But let, what do we, as what do we as business aviation need to be doing to convince pilots that BizAv is a great place to be versus American and Delta and United? Um, boy, that's a good question. So because the, the airlines, because they're so visible, there's the perception that maybe it's not perception. The reality is, you know, there's consistency of, of employment, right? They're protected by the unions, which may be a hundred percent important. There is a very predictable path forward. Um, so, so that's attractive. I mean, I, I'd be lying if, if I said it wasn't, um, you know, what we need to do is we need as an industry to really paint the picture of um, how that same consistency can wind up existing within a company or at least within the industry, right? Some Right now, you get a youngster that winds up coming into 
um, aviation for them, that pathway forward, there's a pathway, but it's a little bit jagged, right? I mean, so so you learn how to fly and then maybe you come become a flight instructor and you know, then you have 500 hours and some people will accept 500 hours on maybe a turbine airplane. Some people won't accept 500 hours, but, but I wanna be a jet pilot. And how am I gonna to get to a jet pilot? Oh my gosh, do I have to go fly skydivers now or, or whatever it is? So, so that pathway, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it is much less defined and much less predictable. Um, you know, after you get into a jet aircraft, I think, maybe notwithstanding the guy in the Challenger 300, I don't know what his situation is, but if you're a professional pilot in a jet aircraft, especially in this environment, I think there is a pretty clear pathway forward in terms of what they can become based on good work ethic and, and all the rest of those types of things. So um, we need to, and, and I think one of the things our industry suffers from right now is that lack of predictability has kept a lot of people, a lot of young people away from going into to aviation. You know, they don't know how they're going to make that jump from college to what they want to do, which is a jet airplane, because there's a, a, a pretty big gap. The airlines, I mean, heck, look at United Airlines. They just opened up the United Airline Academy or whatever they call mm -hmm. it. I mean, they, they have created a pathway from our number one as a student pilot into the right seat of one of their airplanes. I mean, they've done it again, to their credit as an industry. And I don't have the right answers probably, or I don't have immediate answers as an industry. We need to figure out a way to create and define that pathway and then work with some of the big uh, schools out there, Emory Riddle, Southern Illinois, North Dakota, Lewis, I mean, pick your school and, and define that pathway and get out there and promote it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, you know, not to throw rocks at anybody. Um, I've been in this industry a long time. I don't think the OEMs, you know, the OEMs have a vested interest in ensuring that we have, you know, capable and strong pilots. And, you know, we've seen this, I think we've seen this, you know, the shortage coming for quite a long time and they've had a lot of opportunities to get on board and help their operators, you know, and their customers, management companies, et cetera. Mm -hmm. figure out a strategy. And I think maybe now it's time for the OEMs to get involved. It's more than an operator problem. It's, it's an industry problem. I completely agree. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You talk about the OEMs, the smaller ones, the Cirrus jets and things along those lines, you know, for the first time um, when they had their Cirrus, I mean, they started developing their own academies and mentorship programs and different things along those lines because they really recognized the gap between the people that uh, the skills of the people that were buying their airplanes the skills that they had with the skills that were needed. So, I mean, I think that's kind of where, and the insurance company recognized it really, really early, mm -hmm. but um, you know, that's the first place that they really developed some sort of a crossover program. Um, you know, uh, I, I would love, you know, to engage in a conversation, whether it winds up being, you know, Gulfstream, Cessna, Bombardier, Dassault, whatever. The, and really uh, I would invite an industry coalition to see what we could wind up doing as an industry to kind of create that pathway. Cause you're right. I mean, if there's no airplanes, the worst thing that can happen for any one of those manufacturers is to have an underqualified person in an airplane that ultimately res results in a bad situation. I mean, that's, that's, I don't need to say it, but that's not good for anybody. Yeah, no, I agree. And so I'm going to shift gears in you one more time. You're privately Please. held, you're a privately held family owned company. Mm -hmm. How many employees now? So we have about 90 W2 employees. So the way okay. our programs work, um, it's kind of interesting. People ask me that question and we're responsible for about 350. Okay. Um, we have about 90 W-2 employees. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just a matter of how many paychecks we write. We have programs, our management profiles. You do not need to be employed by Priester Aviation to be um, a crew member, a maintenance technician, a flight attendant, whatever the case is of the airplanes that we wind up managing. So, um, uh Pick one of those answers, either 90 so, or 300. Yeah, so so as, you, as you're going, so hiring, you know, I work primarily with small and middle market companies where every hire is a critical hire. It's an important hire and you can't afford to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. What's your process to make sure you don't get it wrong? What are you hiring for? Are you hiring for aptitude, attitude, 
cultural fit, a little bit of everything. How do you know who's going to fit in your organization when they're going through the priester process? Yeah. So um, I'm going to give you two answers there. So non-cockpit employees, we are really focusing on um, uh, attitude and aptitude. So um, we feel that if we hire the right person with the right attitude, we can teach them the things that they need to know as long as they have a true passion and interest for, for, for aviation. So if it's a client service person, a logistics person, whatever the case is, um, you know, we want to make sure we wind up having the right person. Um, it is slightly different and not discounting those things for the crew members, but there are plain old technical requirements, right. That you have right. to have sure. for, for the crew members. So, I mean, there are some limitations, um, you know, uh, and we do have some minimums thousand hours for the right seat of a turbine airplane. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think it's 3000 hours for the left seat. And then of course you have the more complex airplanes, you need more time and, and things along those lines. So it's always going to wind up being, um, again, attitude and aptitude, but with the technical components, we have to be a little bit more critical. And then, um, you know, then the ability to really, uh, work within that team environment. You know, our industry has been propped up by a lot of cowboys over the last 60 years. And, mm -hmm. and that's not the way we operate. And I don't think it's the way our industry operates anymore. You know, having somebody with that collaborative mindset that is willing to, um, you know, take input from other people as part of the decision-making process. If you don't have that, you know, if in the cockpit, if you're the kind of person that says, get in, sit down, shut up, and I'll take care of the rest. That's not obviously who we're looking for. Um, and, and we work really hard. We have about a four-step uh, interview process um, that does include the owner of the airplane, assuming that's what they want to do, um, to really try and find that right person. Because it's, I mean, you got to get it right, both culturally, but if you don't, it's super expensive, obviously, for not only training, if it happens to be a 135 airplane, how much longer are you going to be down or how many charter trips are you going to miss? So, so yeah, I mean, we, it's hard, but I mean, uh, and we're not perfect. We're pretty good, but we're not perfect. Um, and, and then once you get them in, put your arms around them, show them what Priester is about, and then keep them as long as you can. How many people show up at your door and just love aviation? And they're like, we I, I want to be a part of this. I mean, you know, you know, not not cockpit people, but you think about your support staff, your hangar staff, your customer service. I mean, are, uh, they, yeah. are they just aviation geeks through and through? Do they show up and just say, yeah, Andy, yeah, I just love this. How do I become a part of it? Yeah, uh, yes. I mean, and it's one of those things. I think aviation might be a little bit unique that it is an industry that is uh, that is driven by passion, right? So, I mean, um, it typically winds up being, and you probably know this, Craig. You know, the first thing they wind up saying is, "I've loved aviation since I was a kid." You wind up hearing the stories of, "I used to sit in my backyard and watch the airliners fly over my house," or "I ride my bike to the local airport," and you know what? I just want to figure out how I can be a part of it. Yep. Um, you know. So, I mean, that that is absolutely a common theme. Um, and if it is not a direct theme with the person that you're recruiting or interviewing, that person likely came in as a result of somebody else that's in your organization that talks about how cool it is. So, you know, somehow or another, they're either personally um, connected and invested and have a passion for aviation or, um, you know, they are a close acquaintance or a friend of somebody that is that shares with them how cool it winds up being. There you go. I got you. What, uh, you know, industry's moving a mile a minute right now. I mean, we've gone through, you think about in the last 10 years, well, okay, 14 years, we went through a great recession, which everybody went, whoa, what happened there? Then we've seen the, yeah, then we sort of saw a little bumpiness. Then COVID came along and said, whoa, what happened there? And now we're seeing this meteoric, kind of <laughs> rise where everybody, I think a lot of people just wish it would slow down a little bit, actually. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what's, where do you see great opportunity right now for the industry? What, what's got you a little nervous? Um, how do we all work through it? Yeah. Um, you know, what's got me nervous right now is um, I do think demand is going to slow. You know, we're seeing it right now. Some of that's just seasonal demand. But, um, you know, with interest rates, what they're doing, I think there's going to wind up being a pause on the charter side. Okay. Um, where the opportunity exists is, I think, on 
um, the management side. So there is so much pent up demand for an aircraft act, aircraft acquisition side of things. I think that's going to keep rolling. So I know um, uh, inventories are at uh, continue to be at historic lows. However, they're a little bit better right now on used aircraft. I can tell you, we have a number of people that we're currently working with that essentially, I, I just wrote um, uh, an article for Gil over at uh, Business Aviation Advisor. It's titled Angry Birds. You kind of go through this whole thing, but but you, know, you have a lot of people that um, were trying to get into the charter market, found out there wasn't much availability and they got frustrated. So then they're like, okay, I want to buy an airplane. And then they got frustrated again because there was no airplanes available or you couldn't get one for six months. Um, and then if they did wind up getting an airplane, it gets right back to what we were talking about before. Now they have the most unsteady operating environment, whether it's um, you know, crew salaries, fuel costs, um, uh, maintenance delays because of um, you know, supply chain issues or shallow labor pools or whatever it is. So, so it's 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 been challenging. But where I think there's opportunity is. I think now that charter is starting to slow down a little bit and inventories are starting to creep up a little bit, everybody that's wanted to buy an airplane but couldn't find the right airplane to buy for the last six to 12 months, that's still interested in buying an airplane because their appetite hasn't changed, right. um, is going to be able to get an airplane. So I predict the management companies are going to continue to grow. I think you're going to continue to see some consolidation out there just because mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of money on the sidelines and there's going to be people that say, if I can't make my money in the market, I might invest it into something that a lot of people think there's a future in. And most people say charter corporate aviation, that's going to continue to do, you know, certainly better than 2018, 2019, things along those lines, that's going to continue to grow. Most of the OEMs, their backlogs are up to 2025 now, I think I heard. So right. yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, it's a couple of years. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the opportunity exists on the management side for sure. I think charter is going to wind up being tempered, certainly not go back to where it was, but I think we're going to come back off of the highs that we had and in 2021 and the, the drastic COVID demand. Um, and then, you know, I think we're going to have kind of slow and controlled growth at that new stable, uh, stabilized level. I was talking to, you know, my, my, uh, the airline thing isn't going to, you know, the, the chaos in the airlines isn't going to go away anytime soon. I was talking to for anybody with $10 million net worth or more. He was, he's a, he's a charter sales guy. I said, like your target should just be anybody with $10 million net worth or more, or any midsize mm -hmm. company in your, in your market and go sell mm -hmm. them a card mm -hmm. and get them addicted. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's going to be stable. Do you think aircraft values stay stable again do you think that we're gonna yeah i i'm not sure i, I see another i certainly don't see another 2008 yeah the no falls out you know as long as is as long as your your inventories stay below 10 percent, i think you're going to wind up seeing values reasonably stable i mean at two percent obviously you're seeing an appreciated an appreciating market i think i heard a stat that this is only the second time in 30 years that the aircraft values have appreciated over time, but I still believe this winds up being a spot in time. Okay. So, um, you know, I think over the next three, four years, you'll wind up having reasonable stability. I think you're going to stop with the appreciation. I mean, it's got to stop at some point or another. That might not be for another six months or so, but, um, you know, it's not the feeding frenzy that it was even six months ago. Still busy, um, but I think for the next two, three, maybe four years, they're going to stabilize. Then let's see what happens with the economy, right? Let's see what happens. I think the election is going to wind up being interesting. See what happens in that situation. We'll see how long the war with Ukraine continues. Um, we'll see what happens if we if we continue to have elevated fuel prices, things along those lines, um, interest rates. I mean, again, everybody on the podcast knows everything that's going on, and that's going to take an effect. It's not going to keep people from buying airplanes uh, completely, but it could wind up slowing that whole market. How much is fuel, the cost of fuel, affecting people's desire to fly? A lot of people um, say it's a lot. A lot of people say, eh, not so much. Uh, for the 91 side, not so much. 
I mean, people that have the airplanes are going to use their, their, their airplanes. I mean, they're imputing it into their costs. Fuel's not going to make them slow down or sell their airplanes. For the charter customer, um, there have been such drastic changes in charter pricing over the last two years. Um, they kind of accepted it being more expensive, but you know, we have right now we have fuel surcharges that again, six months ago were 350 bucks an hour that are now 1200 bucks an hour. I mean, it just winds up being silly. So that starts to take its toll. I don't think those people are going to wind up stopping flying, but I think they're going to wind up being much more selective and using charter really when it winds up making sense, you know, they, they might not fly charter from Chicago to New York. You know, they might go first class if they can get a ticket that winds up doing it. Mm -hmm. But if they're going from Chicago to New York to Raleigh to Atlanta and then coming home over three days, that's when they're going to still use. They're not afraid to use charter when it winds up really providing value for their business or their situation. So you have to. I mean, you yeah. have to. Yeah. If you if you need to be there, you can't trust the airlines right now. Yeah. You just, yeah. You so, just it's a, it's an impossible it's impossible. We're, you know, a lot of ultra, you know, a lot of bigger planes, a lot of big metal being sold. You know, you guys, you guys have hangers, you're a staple at Pewaukee. So how's the big metal affecting your real estate and the hangar capability? Are you building more? What, uh, you know, the changing demographic mm -hmm. size of airplanes has got to be a, that's got to be a big, a big effect on Priester's it is. Business. So, you know, um, we got out of the hangar business when we sold the company in 2001 to Signature. So we're just tenants of Signature here. Okay. So, um, you know, when we had our shift, we sold the FBO, we sold the repair station in 2001. And, and our focus, our strategy as a company is to align ourselves with the owners. So um, uh, as their partner, for a hangar deal, if it makes sense to actually invest in infrastructure and have them buy it, that's really going to be something that we would work on with the owner. But nine times out of 10, in fact, 99 times out of 100, we're simply providing the best hangar option. And if it's an airplane that's based in Orlando, we're talking to the FBOs that are, are in Orlando to really see what they wind up having available. You know, 2020 hindsight, I can tell you our hangers here at Chicago Executive, aka Palwaukee, um, you know, the biggest thing that we can have in our hangers is a G450. The construction on the field by both Signature, Atlantic, Hawthorne are, are is very purposeful. So those things now hold, you know, two, three, four global 7500s or G650s or whatever you have. I mean, there's, there's no small hangers anymore. So, um, you know, we're, but we're subjected to what winds up being available just like everybody else. And yes, it's, it's difficult. We just wound up putting a Falcon 2000 LXS down in Orlando. And I mean, we had to really survey the first two airports that the owner wanted the airplane at no hangar space. And I forget the exact airport that they wound up, but hangar space is really, really difficult right now. Yeah. That's what everybody's telling me. It's like the, it's, it's the billionaires are kicking out the millionaires. It, you know, it's the, it, you know, it's sort of that analogy, right? And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do you see the opportunities? I mean, uh, you know, I see a lot of opportunity out there as well. You know, challenge, you know, chaos brings as much opportunity as it does challenge. Um, do you ever see yourself getting back into the the real estate hangar business or do you just like being a management company or, you know? We like the operations side of things, to be honest with you. Um, you know, and, and where I see the opportunities, I mean, look, there's going to be some new models out there that really um, take into consideration things that we haven't taken before. And it kind of goes back to the recruiting for, for pilots and, and, and different things along those lines. Very few management companies have integrated flight schools or recruiting as a core part of their business. They talk to guys like yourself and, and, and we really need to consider as a company and as an industry, what do we need to do to fill those, those pipelines? So I can envision a model, not necessarily for us, although we would explore anything where companies, bigger companies, companies that might have um, a flight school to actually integrate um, the education of early students into, um, you know, job execution when they wind up finishing their certificates and, and things along those lines. So that's a pathway that I'm not familiar with that exists within our mm -hmm. industry, but I think you're going to wind up seeing, I wouldn't be surprised if you see people address the current issues by creative solutions and expansion of their business programs kind of along those lines. And I do think it's an opportunity. I, I really, really do. 
Um, so, I mean, there's, there's one, um, you know, obviously, um, I think there's going to continue to be creative ways to become more efficient. Uh, I applaud the people in Washington right now that are, you know, changing the, the how our industry goes about training and having kind of a universal training curriculum that operators can opt into, you know, for the core components. There's, look, it's kind of silly to think that somebody that's going to wind up flying a uh, a sovereign plus if if we happen to recruit and they join us and they were just at another company flying a sovereign plus to have them go through a sovereign plus course again just to fly for us winds up being silly so you know there's people in washington and again i give credit to the people at nata to say hey listen the core components let's make that stuff universal and then we mm -hmm. only need to train the things that are germane to each certificate so i mean i think there's going to be initiatives to really try and streamline those processes and become more efficient my mm -hmm. guess is there could be some businesses that kind of pop up around that because that's not easy, especially when you've got your capital invested into running your own business and things along those lines. Consultants are going to wind up being valuable to help people through. I mean, I think that's opportunity that winds up being out there, um, you know, and then I think there's going to continue to be some consolidation. I mean, I, it, the the smaller mid-sized companies for the reasons before uh, are just going to get relegated. I mean, uh, owners need to have enough infrastructure to deliver and that's the other thing i will wind up saying part of the challenge in our industry right now is we all represent ourselves the exact same way right so yeah. whether you're the biggest person or whether you're the smallest person we've got the best pilots we've got the most experience we've got great safety programs our airplanes are great greatest customer service. I mean, you put down, it doesn't matter how big or small you are. We all represent ourselves the same way. And it can be super confusing for the consumer. And unless the consumer takes the time to look at exactly how you execute on all those things, they don't know what they're getting. So, right. um, you know, so, so I think when, again, some of the smaller operators really recognize that they struggle to deliver on that, those line items of things, they're going to look for solutions to really get out where they don't have to invest. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, you, you got your big, you got your big companies out there. You, you know, who your, 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 your mega management companies and they serve a purpose. And some people are like, Hey, look, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's like, I'm small, I'm a small shop. And mm -hmm. I just tell people straight up, if you feel like you need a big mega company, that's not me. So let's just, you know, and, and that's the one thing where I think there's some opportunity to go people, hey, look, what are we really going to be in our mm -hmm. space? Who are we going to target? What do we really want to be? And what's our comparative advantage? Yeah, um, and it's it's funny that you, you kind of stole part of my sales pitch whenever I get to sit down with some of the potential aircraft owners and management clients. And usually in the first five minutes, I say something along the lines of, if you want Berkshire Hathaway, we're not Berkshire Hathaway. We're not. If you want general dynamics, we're not general dynamics. We're priest aviation. We do things we believe incredibly well and a little bit differently. And this is our value prop. And I totally respect if, you know, if, if you want, again, Berkshire Hathaway, I, I, I have no issues with that, but just recognize what you're getting. Yeah, no. And, and that's, you're right. And it used to drive me nuts back during the, the great recession when, Politically, we were you know, we were down there somewhere with the oil companies, and you know, you know, it's. Uh, but you saw the same pictures with Gulf Streams on the ramp with a with a Rolls Royce or a Maybach next to it, with some good looking people walking up, and then people or, or the champagne glass on the uh, the table. Oh, we're not luxury. We're 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 business. It's like, come on, guys, we need to. <laughs> you know, if you want to get on the other side of this political curve, we sort of need to re yeah re reinvent ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that message is ever getting through, but, uh, yeah, flying is a business tool. I mean, let's start from there and then, you know, work it outward. Not saying it can't be convenient for a lot of other people, but that's how we approach it. Absolutely. It's all good. How do you, uh, so Eddie, thanks for coming on. How do, and I want to do this again with you. Um, how do people get a hold of it? How do people get a hold of you? So, um, you know, the easiest way is by email, which is andyp at priesterav.com, you know, or you can always give me a call in the office, which is 847-537-1133. And, and uh, I love talking about this stuff. I mean, I've got my views of the industry, obviously. I'm super excited about what we're doing with the company. And if anybody just wants to 
you know, have further conversations or Craig, when you and I do this again, and maybe talk about different topics. I mean, we talk about aviation being a passion. It is. I happen to have a 77 year legacy that, you know, kind of has led me to this point through my grandfather and my father. So I like to say we've probably made most of the mistakes that could have been made out there and we've learned from them and that's got us to where we are today. So, um, you know, we're looking forward to what tomorrow brings. So you've got, so I'm going to, let's, let's finish up with this. You've got a son and a daughter. I do. I do. Is your daughter involved in the business? She is. So uh, my daughter runs our marketing department. So I really recognized a couple of years back that um, we really need a much better social media presence, marketing presence. She's really good at what she does. And she was a victim of uh, a COVID layoff. So, you know, midway through COVID, I'm like, honey, why don't you come and join the business? Because we can really, she's, you know, she's 25. She's super smart, super good at what she does. But uh, to the extent anybody's seen kind of the transformation of our logo and how we present ourselves and how we're getting out there, she's the one that uh, deserves uh, most of the credit. And you've got a son that plays pro ball. He does. So um, uh, my son, so yeah, right there, he plays for the the Pirates. He was a uh, actually the first round pick number 18 overall in the 2019 draft out of high school. He's a right-hand pitcher for any of you guys that have met me, you will know he doesn't get his athletic <laughs> abilities from me, but, uh, he's doing super. He's at double a ball in Altoona. And I'm, I'm proud of both of them. I really are. They're special kids. But did working around a family owned business, give him that a little bit of competitive edge. Oh, he's competitive. He's competitive. Yeah. I mean, he'll give you a hug, uh, a hug one day, but he'll wind up, you know, tearing you up if you wind up trying to get a hit off of him. So, uh, uh, but, and maybe some of it's the, the family business too. So uh, we'll see. Awesome. Hey, Andy, thanks for coming on today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Look forward to doing it again. Sounds good, Craig. I appreciate it. Thanks for everything. Talk soon. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.